Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, extreme mountaineering and lights. Especially with altitude, you oftentimes don't realize you're beyond that limit of where your body can take it. And once you've crossed that line, there's no real saving you anymore. So I realized the more passionate I am about something, the more do other people want to see me do it and succeed. The hardest part of my expeditions is oftentimes getting to the starting line. Once you're at the starting line, 80% of the expedition are done. The execution is the remaining 20%. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for all of your support. So I want to get right to our first guest. She's an extreme mountaineer. And what I think is so interesting about this conversation, not just the places that she's been and the experiences that she's had, but the message that anybody can do this if you just do certain things. This is extreme mountaineer Anya Blanja. What is it about the mountains? What is it that calls to you about the mountains? I mean, first of all, I think we all, humankind, know this kind of like attraction to mountains and their magnitude, magnificence. But being in the mountains, that for me is about the presence of just being in the moment. And then it's the challenge. Were you hooked from the first time or was this something that kind of built up over time? Well, I grew up not knowing anything about mountains. So when I would go on holidays, I'd be going to the beach or maybe doing a small city trip. But the first time that I actually saw some proper mountains was in 2013 when I was 23 years old. And I quite liked the environment. I was stunned by, yeah, by those, uh, by those landscapes. And so my next holidays was like, I want to see that again as part of my backpacking trip to Argentina. And I was like, okay, where can, where can I go and do like a multi-day hike and, and see some mountains and so on? And I ended up climbing Aconcagua. I think that was the moment where I was like, I really want to experience this again and again and again. So your first mountain experience was climbing one of the seven summits in South America? Yeah, that's right. Mount Aconcagua, it's called. That seems like that's a pretty intense first experience. Like, I thought you were going to say, like, I went on this two-mile hike, saw the waterfall, turned around, came back. In a way, it helped that I didn't know much about mountains back then because I was not expecting so much in terms of, like, what it had to be like and what it would have to 
give me and there was no kind of like pressure and also there was no feeling of ah, what if I'm not good enough what if I'm not skilled enough instead I just went by okay what's the requirements that the expedition provider the mountain guide put forward can I tick those boxes and if I can hey why not do it instead of being like uh -huh. you know all those people around me are better mountaineers are more skilled more experienced and so on maybe I shouldn't be trying this I think in a way it was good that I got into this world without much prejudice. Okay, I get that climbing these 8,000 meter mountains is hard, right? But I don't really understand it. Is there something that you could like put in perspective of like, okay, how difficult is this really? I think one of my most difficult moments was when I was climbing Broad Peak, which is not a very well-known 8,000 meter peak. Uh, it was my first 8,000 meter peak without bottled oxygen though. And on summit day, that feeling was like having to keep walking in a straight line after feeling like you haven't slept for maybe two nights in a row and having had a bottle of vodka. That's, that's how it feels like when you're not properly acclimatized walking at high altitude. Um, overall, I think it's a lot of a mental game. Those 8,000 meter peak expeditions take a lot of time because you have to get to base camp first. That oftentimes is a multi-day trek, even just getting to the starting point. Then from then on, you always need to wait for a good weather window to then go and climb a little bit higher up that mountain and then come back to base camp again so that you keep pushing your body um, to the feeling of altitude, to the lack of oxygen and allow for it to rest, recover and adapt and then you go up again when the next weather window is there. And sometimes there's avalanches in between that destroy all the effort you've made on building the route or setting up camps higher up the mountains. Sometimes there's bad weather for two weeks and you can't do anything about that. Um, and then sometimes you don't feel quite ready yet but the opportunity is there to go and push and you need to just go grab it and force yourself up that mountain. So. A lot of that is a mental challenge of being resilient and being being able to adapt to what nature around you dictates. What is the significance of doing it without oxygen? I think climbing with or without bottle oxygen is best compared to doing Tour de France on an e-bike or a normal bike. So it's a huge difference. Like, if you're doing Tour de France on the e-bike, I think most of us would be able to do it. Having to do it on a regular bike, not so sure. And so the reason why that's so different is because at altitude, you've got lower air pressure. So with lower air pressure, you've got lower levels of oxygen around you. And um, that means that at an altitude of 8,000 meters, you have less than one third of the amount of oxygen around you that you'd normally have at sea level approximately. So even if you wouldn't do any exercise and actually you're climbing up there, within 24 hours or maybe 48 hours, you would, generally speaking, die because of the lack of oxygen. And that's why also that altitude is called the death zone in mountaineering. Your blood circulation does not work that well anymore. You'll have much colder extremities like your hands or your feet. Um, you'll be hyperventilating and thus you'll be inhaling significant amounts of really cold air that will cool you out from inside, no matter how warm your downsuit is and so on. And so when you use supplemental oxygen, 
you will alleviate and greatly reduce all those factors and bring down the perceived altitude of the mountain. So even if you're standing on top of like an 8,000 meter peak, the perceived altitude for your body might only be 7,000 or 6,000 or even 5,000, depending on what oxygen system you use. So it's a huge difference in that regard. Do people who climb it without oxygen kind of look down on the people who climb it with oxygen? It's kind of like, yeah, but you did it with oxygen. I think there's, uh, there's a few different camps and there's a few different arguments to be had. Like, of course, there's those purists that say, do it without oxygen or don't do it at all. Then there's those who say, well, if you don't do it with oxygen, um, you're a risk to other people or you can't help that much if there's an emergency because there's no backup system of oxygen when something goes wrong and when you get altitude sickness and so on. So safety um, is a concern. And then, um, yeah, there's those who are saying, look, it might be a nice, um, a nice achievement for you personally, but I don't think it's worth taking the risks because especially with altitude, you oftentimes don't realize you're beyond that limit of where your body can take it. And once you've crossed that line, there's no real saving you anymore. So only to say, oh, well, I've done it without bottle oxygen. Why would I take the risk? So you've done all of the seven summits. The seven summits is the highest mountain on every continent, right? What, well, how come you wanted to do that? What motivated you to go for all seven? It kind of was just unfolding with my holidays. So the first of seven summits was I wanted to go to Argentina, go backpacking. Then I was working a lot in Africa and my boss told me, hey, why don't you save our company and yourself some money for flights and just spend your holidays in Tanzania next to our customer in Kenya and, and go climb Kilimanjaro. How could I say no? And um, just like that, with every holiday, one of the seven summits was added to my um, to my mountains climbed. And, and eventually I was like, I got to go and see Antarctica. I got to go and, and climb Mount Vincent as well and, and complete the seven summits. How do you get this much time off? That's the one question that I was wondering, because I know you work a full-time job. Like, how do you get this much time off to do these things? Negotiation is a good skill to have, for sure. <laughs> um, I realized the more passionate I am about something, the more do other people want to see me do it and succeed. So if I was to ask for two months off because I want to go on a beach holiday and lay by the sea, no one's going to say yes. But if I'm saying, look, I deeply care about climbing K2, or I deeply care about going on the solo expedition to the South Pole, and I'll put a lot of time and effort into this, and also I'll be giving back when I come back or give my best before as well. People are like, I want to be there for you and I want to support you on your journey. The second thing I would like to add to that is, I've met so many people who say, I would love to do it, but I don't have the time now. And then they wait for the right moment. And then years go by and there's never the right moment because there's always something. And so if you wait for the right moment, you'll wait forever. But why then, like, why do you think, is this just your nature? Like, why do you do this and other people do not? Right? Because I think that everybody would kind of agree with those sentiments, but people just don't do it. 
So what is it like? How do you do it, and other people are like, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I think one thing is commitment. So I make that conscious decision, like it's a binary yes or no decision. Like, yes, I commit to making this my goal, and therefore I will make it work. Or it's no, it's nice to have, but I'm not committed to prioritize it enough. So I think that's the number one thing, like really committing to a goal and being binary about it, not being a maybe and not being like, let me see and let me try, but being like, yes, I will make it happen. Um, that's a that's the number one most important thing. And then I think what adds to that is I have for kind of like learning from my first and early experience, adopted that mindset that you don't need to be special to do something special. You don't need to be like the people who did it before you to do the same thing. Like, instead of trying to be either that unicorn or to be a copy of that huge, big, daunting adventurer, just be yourself and just do it the way that it works, that works best for you. And, um, and I found that to be super helpful because then you stop comparing yourself, you stop getting derailed by looking at others and you stop, you know, maybe thinking, oh, is it now an imposter syndrome? Am I maybe not that special? Am I maybe not good enough? Am I maybe whatever? And you, you, you don't have any excuses anymore. It's just about like, okay, I am who I am and I've got what it takes if I just put my mind to it. And I think that also underlines the point that the hardest part of my expeditions is oftentimes getting to the starting line. Once you're at the starting line, 80% of the expedition are done. The execution is the remaining 20%. So when did you start? So you were climbing all these mountains, got bored climbing all these mountains. When did you start doing the polar expeditions, crossing the poles, that kind of stuff? End of 2018, I was sitting in the office in like a gray, rainy afternoon. I was like, oh, I would kind of like to go on another expedition. But as you said, uh, Another mountain feels a bit repetitive at this point. I've climbed so many, it would be nice to learn something new and push myself. And I remember that when I was in Antarctica for the first time in 2017, that was the first time I heard about polar expeditions. And that came into my mind again. So I started Googling polar expeditions. Um, I wrote a couple of messages, did some research and um, a few weeks later, I stood on cross-country skis for the first time in my life and learned the art and craft of polar travel and polar expeditions. And um, a year later, I did my big, big trip across Antarctica from the outer coastline all the way to the South Pole and, uh, and set a world record on cross-country skis. And um, it was also a great, great way to learn about self-sufficiency and and you know doing things all alone eventually is it what how would you compare it to kind of mountains would you say it's more difficult or less difficult or just different like how would you compare it quite different i mean from the outside it looks so similar you've got snow and ice you've got remote places and hostile environments but on the mountains you spend a lot of time resting and recovering waiting for good weather and so on. And so the actual climbing activities on those big mountain expeditions are right, are quite short. Um, but when they happen, they're 
they can be very taxing and exposed and dangerous and you are in a far more risky environment. On polar travel, you have really long days. Every day is a day. There's no rest days. There's no let's let's retreat and recover and and go back out again a couple of days and so on. Like every single day, you have a full day of work, so to speak. And all the little details matter so so much. And polar travel, you think about okay, how many seconds per break or per changing my layers do I lose if I have a Velcro on top of my zipper of my jacket? Like, that's the type of detail you get into. It's like, okay, I will need to pre-cut my protein bars or energy bars before I head out onto the expedition because they will be so frozen, it will take me too much time to warm them up and and eat and chew them uh, if I don't do that in advance. Like, you think about the tiniest details that will cost you so much time over a, a two-month period. So, very different and both have their challenges in their own right. Why is the time such a concern? Like, why would you do that? Just because you you don't want to stop, essentially? Or, like, what's the reason that, like, time is such an important thing? Typically, on polar expeditions, you want to go unsupported, which means that from day one of the start of your expedition, everything you will need to have with you to make it to the end of your expedition has to be on your sled that you drag behind you. And the more you need the heavier the sled gets. And so it makes a huge difference if you're carrying or pulling a sled that weighs 100 kilos or if you're uh, pulling a sled that weighs 130 kilos. Um, so you want to minimize the weight, but you want to make it. So you need to have enough food, enough fuel, enough everything. Um, and the faster you go, the shorter the time you will need to get from A to B. Um, so it's a, it's a matter of finding the sweet spot between minimal weight for maximum speed without you know risking that you will run out of food fuel or have a have an incident in between that you can't resolve with the supplies that you have are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions sure what was the scariest experience that you've had i guess one mountain that had a few scary experiences was k2 I remember one night um, we were sleeping on Camp 3 and um, I was sharing a tent with a climbing partner and late at night he woke me up and he was like, hey, we need to get down immediately, like there's been so much snow accumulating and it sounds like we'll have avalanche risk um, very soon if we don't get down right now, like that might be it. Like. That's the moment where you're like fast awake. <laughs> um, luckily, uh, turned out was a lot of snow drift, but no fresh snow, and so we were safe. But like that moment when you wake up and you're like in shock, you won't forget quickly. And just a few days later, on that same expedition, we were on the summit push. We're going for the summit, and K2 is known for the bottleneck section, which is um, the most dangerous section of the whole mountain, and it's so close to the summit. It's just the last couple of hundreds of meters on the final day after being out there for like six, seven weeks. And we had to turn around right in the middle of that section, in the middle of the night, because again, there were there was such deep snow that there were snow slabs coming down 
and they almost pulled one of the climbers down that was going far ahead and um, there was a moment you're like okay I want to make it to the top but I don't want to lose my life now's the moment to turn around is it harder to go up or harder to go down harder on the knees to go down but definitely takes so much longer to go up but do sometimes do you ever do people get in situations where they like put so much effort into going up that like oh how are you gonna get down now that is a real danger the majority of people who have died in the mountains died on their descent and i've unfortunately had to witness that last summer um i was climbing nanga Parbat. i only had base camp support so i was kind of on my own on the mountain but there were three other climbers who about the same time as me summited and we we all kind of like connect and said like hey let's let's go down now um before it's too late and um one of those climbers got altitude sick um probably already on the way up but it really emerged on the way down and eventually we couldn't save him and he died and that's the moment where where we realize it's a it's a fine line between you know summiting nice okay good but losing your life that is a whole different thing and yeah that's when you when you when you realize you got to be extra careful you can't push to your limits in the mountains i would say in order to go above and beyond my limits metaphorically speaking i always have to stay below my limits when you set out on one right for yourself and for other people do you is it really in your mind that like oh i'm not coming back i wouldn't go out if i thought i wouldn't come back i'm not suicidal i'm not going there because i'm like oh i might i might kill myself in the process but let me try anyway i'm going there feeling confident enough that i will be able to make the right calls to come back home safely because that's what this is all about i want to come back home safely and not i want to i want to summit a mountain at all costs and if it costs my life i'm happy to give my life away for it but having said that death comes close and close every year like even just looking back at you know my footage from last summer even though none of those have been people i've known before it's like people i've met or had short encounters with that are no longer with us and that list of people is growing every year. Do you think that you would stop because of that? Yeah. And I think um, it's important to remind yourself of doing that. <clears throat> we call it the summit fever when you forget about everything else and just go for the summit and just try to push on and push on and push on um, and just hope for it to turn out well in the end. Um, but I think it takes a lot of mental strength and a lot of like self-confidence to say, no, today's not the day. Because at that moment where you're saying, no, today's not the day, you're still okay. So you'll always be like, but maybe it could have worked out. Maybe I could have made it. You will never know because at that moment you'll still feel okay. So it takes a lot of like self-discipline, a lot of like mental strength, a lot of self-confidence. Like also people who have to tell you know, family and friends, media, sponsors, oftentimes big parties involved. Like, hey, I wasn't feeling it. I turned around and I'm still okay. Like, you know, I'm standing here 
in perfect health with all my fingers, my nose and my toes. Um, then why did I turn around? Well, because I wasn't feeling it. Uh, okay. You have to be able to do that and to say that and to stand up for that. Light, slightly lighter subject. Which one, which one of the mountains did you climb was that was your favorite? Which one was like, oh, I really like that one. Um, even though I talked so negatively about that, like K2 will always be, spe be special for me. Um, we had the most beautiful summit push. Um, um, we were only like a group of maybe 20 climbers at whole day on the mountain. Um, perfect views, perfect weather. And it's just such an iconic mountain to climb with this. Yeah, stunning triangular shape that you see from afar. I will, I will always love K2, I think. Which one was the hardest? Which one would you say like, oh, that was the hardest one? That was, that was tough. Um, <laughs> funny enough, Broad Peak, which is an absolutely unassuming 8,000 meter peak was the hardest for me because we did a very early push to the summit in terrible conditions. I was not well acclimatized and just everything was so hard on that summit ridge, which stretches on for what felt like forever. So it doesn't need to be a difficult mountain to be a difficult climb for you personally is what I realized. Was there one that you're like, that one wasn't that hard. Which one would you say was kind of overrated in its toughness? I think in terms of toughness, Nanga Parbat is called the most difficult one of the 8,000 meter peaks. It's very technical and very steep and so on. But I feel like commercialization of 8,000 meter peak climbing, which means You've usually got um, multiple expedition teams, you share rope fixing, you've got well-established camps and drought setting and so on. Made it quite easy so that I don't feel like Nanga Parbat, even though it's supposed to be the most difficult of the 8,000 meter peaks, is a technical challenge anymore. Does that ruin things for people? Do you feel like that's ruining the sport? Or is this just, this is how it is now? I guess it adds to the popularity of the sports. I think what we're seeing in the Himalayas right now is what we've seen in, say, the Alps in the years before. Like, back in the days, no one would climb them at all. Then some some explorers would want to climb them, and then all of a sudden everybody's climbing them. And I think we are at a point where, to some extent, this is happening in the Himalayas as well. Um, and in a way, it's okay. It's great that this is becoming more accessible for people. At the same time, I think we need to be cautious to make sure that even though more people go, they are still sufficiently prepared. Um, what's next? Um, I don't have a bucket list of projects or goals to tick off. Um, I guess it's more about like, you know, creating new experiences, learning, developing myself. Um, yeah, but I suppose it's safe to say that I am going to do some more polar and mountain expeditions in the future, but I guess ultimately like the main goal for me is more to, yeah, pursue a life well lived, the art of striving well, the art of like using my potential. Um, and I guess that's a journey that will never end. Do you feel like you'll kind of continue down this, I'll just use the word for lack of a better word, like more extreme thing, or do you ever see yourself like, I want my next challenge is to go to all the buffets in Las Vegas or something like that. Do you ever feel like it'll will it always be something like this or do you think it will ever kind of like change into something more 
mundane, for lack of a better word. I actually love the balance. Like, I think if I was just in the bubble of explorers and expeditioners, I wouldn't be happy. I like to, like, step into that world, but then to step out of that world again and be, you know, in the world of business and the city life and so on. For me, it's it's super nice to have that balance of different worlds. And so I don't see myself as, like, just focused on the extreme for the next however many years or completely stepping out of it. But let's it's, see. It's, I miss this one a little bit. And this is one where they just use a couple of words, but I think I know what they mean. And the question is just what's the trade-off, right? Because, like, you know, everything is a give and take. You do this, you don't get to do that. Is there, like, what's the trade-off for doing expeditions like this? <laughs> I think one big thing is the time. So I can only use my time once um, and I spend most of my time um, that I'm not working um, yeah on those expeditions instead of doing extended holidays with my friends and so my my trips with like my kind of like city friends become shorter and shorter it's more like long weekends rather than two weeks of holidays together um, money I guess it's a expensive hobby to have <laughs> So I spend a lot of money on uh, gear, on travel, on equipment, and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to do so. And on summit day, that feeling was like having to keep walking in a straight line after feeling like you haven't slept for maybe two nights in a row and having had a bottle of vodka. That's, that's how it feels like when you're not properly acclimatized walking at high altitude. Um, overall, I think it's a lot of a mental game. Those 8,000 meter peak expeditions take a lot of time because you have to get to base camp first. That oftentimes is a multi-day trek, even just getting to the starting point. Then from then on, you always need to wait for a good weather window to then go and climb a little bit higher up that mountain and then come back to base camp again so that you keep pushing your body um, to the feeling of altitude, to the lack of oxygen, and allow for it to rest, recover, and adapt, and then you go up again when the next weather window is there. And sometimes there's avalanches in between that destroy all the effort you've made on building the route or setting up camps higher up the mountains. Sometimes there's bad weather for two weeks and you can't do anything about that. Um, and then sometimes you don't feel quite ready yet, but the opportunity is there to go and push and you need to just go grab it and force yourself up that mountain. So a lot of that is a mental challenge of being resilient. I want to thank Anya so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And we've also included her information in the episode description. If you want to see more of these expeditions and see some of the places that Anya has been, the YouTube version of this episode will be live on January 25th at 12.30 p.m. Pacific. So real quick, I want to take a minute and tell you about one of the sponsors of this show, EveryPlate. EveryPlate is now owned by HelloFresh, a leading meal delivery company. And we've all heard about meal delivery companies, but what really sets EveryPlate apart is the price and the quality 
and the deal that they are offering for the month of January. Every plate is the least expensive meal delivery company. Just $1.49 a meal plus $1 steak for life for the month of January. And we're not talking about like just cheap garbage food. Every plate has meals that are easy and don't compromise on quality, and they have a wide variety of recipes. They've got breakfast, 15-minute or less meals, feel-good food, big batch favorites, and you can even add in delicious options to your order with over 25 convenient sides, lunches, snacks, desserts, and even more. And for the month of January, you can get a meal for $1.49 plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49pointless. Now, your subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steak, but if you do that, it is $1 steak for life. We have put the website and that code in the episode description. It's $1.49 a meal. I've had it. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Okay. Now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. How hard would you say you try in everyday life? Like if you put a percentage on it. Probably between a good 60 and 80%. I think I'm probably between 50 to 65%. But then why? how come you don't try any less? Why don't you try harder? I, I think I try hard at the things that I shouldn't try hard at. And then the things that I want to try hard at, I'm too tired or too making excuses to try harder at, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I do that, too. I definitely put too much effort into things that I shouldn't put effort into and then don't have enough energy left to put effort into things that I should really put energy into. I'm not good at prioritizing. You're right. I think you said it right. It all comes down to how you prioritize. Uh, I actually polled the audience. Would you like to hear the results of the poll? Uh, 16% of people said 0 to 25, 36% said 25 to 50, 39% said 50 to 75, and 9% said 75 to 100%. I don't really think that you can try that hard at that much stuff every day and continue that for very long. 
I actually feel like uh, the audience is being pretty honest there. I don't think that people tend to lie anonymously. <laughs> I, but I feel like they go, oh, it's profoundly pointless. I'm just going to click the first thing that I see and, and do it that way. I think that most people would probably average between 40 and 70%. I think that that would be about what most people are putting in every single day. I feel like the longer you are in any situation that you're in, whether it's a job, whether it's whatever, you slowly realize that you don't really have to try that hard. <laughs> I think most of life is actually very simple. I mean, we make it complicated with feelings and emotions. Imagine if you went through life with no emotions, how simple life would be. It'd be boring, though, man. You'd be essentially just be a robot. Like, a robot doesn't enjoy life. Uh, all right, here we go. Uh, let's see. Axel Carlson. I like that first name of Axel. Strong name. Uh, Bode Parkinson. Samuel Wilson. Evan Scala. Keller Button. Aaron Lucera. Bennett Williams. Don't see a lot of Bennett's running around. Uh, Matthew Tajudin. Oliver Olson and Noah Armstrong. Appreciate all of you for checking us out on social media that you tease to every episode, so I'm not going to waste our time. Are you ready for the second edition? Oh, you're going to do it again. Okay. All right, player. I mean, I, I had fun with it. I think you liked it. So um, if you didn't tune in last episode, uh, you should check out a little uh in in episode cross tag promotion whatever um basically i'm gonna give nick 10 random things i'm gonna and these are literally random things i've just thought of uh today or yesterday and i'm just gonna see how he reacts to them uh so first thought first word that's what we're looking for here so uh we're gonna start with a uh we're gonna start now and we're gonna start with a shirtless jason kelsey i don't care about things like that at all and actually this annoys me this annoys me, right? Because, all right, so Jason Kelsey, who is may or may not retiring, he's a football player for the Eagles. He's Travis Kelsey's brother. He's famous, all this kind of stuff. He got all this media attention for being shirtless and think drunk at a football game, right? Which is exactly the same thing that hundreds of other people are doing. Why is it somehow amazing that he's doing it? So him doing something that everybody else is doing is somehow incredibly important and special. I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. However, the hundreds of other people probably aren't a 10-time pro bowler, probably aren't Travis Kelsey's brother, aren't sharing a suite with Taylor Swift. We're giving him attention because he's a famous person. So, like, famous person does things that regular people do all the time. I'm just, just saying. I'm, I see what you're saying, but part of this is to keep it moving, so let's keep moving. Uh, okay. If you, By the way, if you out there have a that strong of an opinion on Jason Kelsey, uh, let us know. All right, uh, second thing here, uh, Judge Judy. Oh, just a great show. Judge Judy, just a great show, right? I can't believe that she's, she was old when I was young. Can't believe that she's still doing her thing. I... I, you know what, I'm probably in the minority, but I don't, I've never cared for any of those court, like live courtroom shows or whatever. Uh, I've just never liked any of them. Nobody could ever do it like Judge Judy did it. Judge Judy is far and away the best at it, and nobody else comes anywhere close to Judge Judy. All right. Uh, let's see here. Face tattoos. Oh, just not a good idea, right? Like, maybe it looks cool, maybe it's your thing, but like. I would advise my sons to pass on that. 
you better be famous. You better be rich and famous. That's what I would say. I was going to say, do you know anybody that isn't Mike Tyson or somebody along those lines famously that has a face tattoo that is proud of it? I don't personally know anybody with a face tattoo. No. All right. Do you? I feel like that's your own fault. Yeah, I mean, neck tattoos, chin, eyes, forehead. You know people with eye tattoos? Yeah, they have them on their eyelids. Well, is it makeup? That doesn't count. No, it's an actual tattoo that they got on their eyelids. And they blink and you see something? Yeah, or when they're sleeping, they're like little they're like little eyes like on top of their eyelids. I don't know how to explain it. They have eye that's weird. That's creepy. That creeps me out. Well, it's probably why they're single and I've never been married. Uh all right. Next thing here, uh microwave rice. I don't microwave rice. That's one of the few things that I feel like you don't put in the microwave is rice. I don't do that. I cook rice on the oven or the top. The What do they call the top of the oven? What do they call that? Stove top. Stove top where God intended it. You were getting there. Uh, all right. Uh, Dolly Parton. Oh, just a legend. And probably one of the great. I don't know about her musically, right? Like, I don't know anything about that. But in terms of, like, somebody who has used their fame and wealth to do great things for a community, I don't think that there's many people that are that are going above and beyond Dolly Parton. That's somebody that you can say has done things and made a difference with their fame. Let's get to the next thing here. Uh, wireless headphones. I don't have any. Seems nice. Seems more convenient. Wireless is always more convenient than wired. Get a get a pair, and it will change your life. I guarantee it. I don't listen to music in headphones. I don't use headphones for anything other than this podcast. That's the only thing I use headphones for. What about your work Zooms, work calls? You go headphoneless? Yeah. All right. The computer has a speaker. What do I need this for? I'm not buying extra. Like, I need to buy headphones for this. Why? You're in your house. Fine. Uh, moving on. Double-decker tacos. Oh, fantastic, man. Just great. I love a good Devil Devil Taco. Probably second, in my opinion, only to the grilled stuffed burrito at Taco Bell. I love the combination of crunchy and soft. All right. Uh, so these last two are really random. So we'll see what you say. Uh, turkey okay. basters. I don't actually ever, don't think I've ever seen one or used it. <laughs> well, it's... Exactly, probably what... How many turkey basters do you have? How many pairs of th uh, tongs do you have now? Tongs are the same, uh, and I have two turkey basters, I think. Why do you need more than one turkey baster? Why would you need more than one turkey baster? They're different sizes. One for meat that I smoke, and then one for meat that goes in the oven. Okay, but couldn't you just use the smaller one? No matter what. Sure, yes. Right, so you really only need one turkey baster. You have a problem with buying things that you don't need. Listen, Mom, if I wanted to be scolded, I would have literally called my mother and had her do that to me. So somebody else has to do it now. This is what you've done. You've passed the responsibility of scolding you to onto multiple people because you didn't listen to your parents, you don't listen to your wife, you don't listen to me, you don't learn from your mistakes, and now everybody's got to deal with it. All right, last thing here. Um, 
People uh, that have one gold tooth. I've, I've never, never seen, seen anybody, anybody with gold teeth. teeth. What, what kind of people are you hanging around? I, I I don't know. I mean, we're similar ages, and I I remember you would get like a like a little porcelain tooth or something, but I don't remember gold being a thing when I was a young lad. I think that mine have. You can see them. Oh God, what is that in there? No, it's just the filling. It's not. It's just a black filling. Yeah, why are your fillings black? Aren't they supposed to be white? No, I got them before. I got them when I was a little kid. You shouldn't have cavities at as an adult, okay? You shouldn't have cavities as an adult unless you have some kind of condition with your teeth or something like that. You shouldn't have cavities as an adult. Brush your teeth. Yeah, brush your teeth. Brush your teeth. PSA from Nick Vistad. Yelling at people. Apparently went to a dentist in the middle of a cornfield. Yeah, I was. I lived in Kansas, man. This is what we had in Kansas. What do your fillings look like there, fancy pants? All, most of my teeth that I had had cavities in became, um, oh my God, what's that word? What's worse than a cavity? Um, root canal. Root canals. So that's why I have caps over my actual teeth. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have my actual teeth. You can also tell because they're white, and apparently my teeth are not white, so that's kind of... I don't think most people's teeth are white, man. Don't be so sensitive about your teeth. Oh, thank you, best friend. Uh, let's let's move on to uh, our top five list. Oh, is there top five already? Okay, all right. Uh, so our top five is top five kinds of lights. There's a lot of kinds of lights. I don't know exactly how this is going to go. But what's your number five? What's your what's your fifth favorite light? Yeah, I I also have no idea where this is gonna go. So uh, let's just do it. Uh, so my number five, I have Christmas lights. That's, That's hard, hard to put, put that, that at number, number five. five. You're gonna, gonna put, put Christmas, Christmas lights as your number, number five? five? They would have gone higher if my father-in-law hadn't ruined them for me forever. Man, there's a little angst between you and your father-in-law. No, we're cool now, nah, man. We hugged it out. We were fun. Did you? Yeah. Did you actually yeah. hug? No, but I think we're fine now. This was a question that I thought of the other day. How many people do you feel like you owe a sincere apology to in your life? Like, you need to apologize to that person. Probably probably about around five, maybe. Like, yeah, probably five. I can think of three that I owe, like, oh, I owe them an apology. I mean, obviously, probably f three out of the five are ex-girlfriends. And then, you know, thing is, is are they going to say, are they going to give me an apology? Because most of my apologies need to be met with an apology from the other person because both of us messed up. Oh, no, I would say, no, the three people that I owe an apology to, it's just me. It's just me. It's not anything super bad, but it's like, oh, that... Well, no, I would say two are an apologies and one is more of an explanation. I still say five. I mean, I, I could say I'm sorry to a few people for some of the things that I did in the past. I don't think that you should owe more than five people a sincere apology. If you get more above five, if you're in like the 10 or 15 range, like you got to reevaluate your life. Like you, you got you to gotta change some things. What's your number five there? Chandelier. Chandelier. Okay, that's actually my number four. Is chandelier. A chandelier? Okay. Yeah, and 
I only put it on the list because some chandeliers are damn cool. Like they are massive and they're just works of art. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't have a chandelier. I'm not wealthy enough to have one, but uh, I, well, they, they just, they speak of elegance in times that have been. There's a classiness that goes along with a chandelier. It's instant class if done correctly. That's why I would put a chandelier up there. I think it's instant class. If done correctly. What's your number four? Uh, my number four is neon lights. I like a good neon light. Catches my attention. Okay. I mean, okay. Like, are you referring to like the neon line or line? Neon light signs kind of, uh, kind of, kind of uh, lights or? Is there any other kind of neon sign? Well, I didn't know if it was just like the, 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 the sign lights or if you're just having like neon lights in the basement or something. Oh, I guess I never really thought about it. I never really went too far into any neon light, honestly. Isn't a neon, otherwise it would just be a bright light. I guess you'd have to be a neon sign, any kind of neon sign. All right. Uh, my number three are can lights. What? I love me a can light. What's a can light? Uh, I ran in a basement. They're like they're flat against the, the ceiling, and most of them are dimmers. Like have dimmers. Oh. Okay. Those are nice. Yeah, those are my. I I I wish I could have them in every room of my house. Like they are, they're just aesthetically pleasing. They're, they're 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 just awesome. I don't know how else, what else to say about them. I would say that looking at a can light, that those are easily the best kind of basement and or bathroom lights. I think that you got to have something kind of hanging down if you're talking about the family room or like the kitchen or someplace like that. But those are easily the best kind of lights for most of the house. I would agree with you there. Good choice. Good choice. It's your number three. High beams on a car. I've always <laughs> liked high beams on a car. It's like, ooh, put on the high beams. Like, yeah. I can really get out there on the road or like it's a dangerous situation. If you got the high beams on on the road, you're not messing around. I'm going to flash my high beams at them to tell oh, them Oh, yeah, go. let them know. Do you know the trick about flashing your high beams? What is that signal to other drivers? For them to get out of your way, I believe. Uh, that's a sign that a cop is farther up the road. That was a Kansas thing. You didn't do that for people? Like, if you passed a cop that was on the highway, you would then, after you got past them, flash your high beams at other drivers coming in to let them know that there was a cop up ahead. No, man. In the city, if you flash your lights at somebody, it's going to cause a problem most times. Yeah, I guess that's kind of true. We're on number two, and I have, uh, like, stadium slash lights. Oh, those are cool. Okay, okay. I don't know if you consider this to be the same thing, but would you consider a spotlight, which is my number two? I think spotlights are awesome. I'm always like, it's a spotlight. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they're a part of the setup, but yeah, that's fine. Spotlight's almost the same thing. Okay, what's your number one? I think we're the same number one. <laughs> yeah. Fleshlight. Oh, it's like that though, isn't it? It is, yeah. My my actual number one is a flashlight. Flashlight is the greatest light source. It's the best kind of light. You carry it around yourself. It can do anything. It can it can it can supplant any other kind of light. 
that might be one of the top 10 greatest inventions of all time is the flashlight. Certainly one of the handiest inventions that you can think of would be a flashlight. Although I think that the flashlight could be supplanted potentially by the headlamp. Headlamp is really a more convenient flashlight if you think about it. I Yeah, I agree with you, I guess, to a certain degree. Headlamps are have, pretty cool. You don't have to use your arms. Automatically points where you're looking. It's great. That was actually on my uh, honorable mention was a uh, headlamp. What else do you have on your honorable mention? Uh, LED light bulbs. Okay, those are those are kind of cool. And then I, I just have like little doctor lights, you know, like the ones that they click on and off. Oh, like the ones that are like that thing you can kind of make them around wherever. I don't know what they call yeah. them. Or like those, the ones okay. that the optometrist use for your eyes. Uh, my honorable mention, I have a lighthouse. Really, a lighthouse should have been. A, I mean, a lighthouse is kind of cool. The concept of a lighthouse is kind of cool. Yeah, the concept's cool, but I, I'm not. I'm not a fan. I don't have. I don't really care about lighthouses one way or the other. I would make a petition that we could rid the world entirely of lamps, mm-hmm. and be completely fine as a civilization. Like we could get rid of all lamps. Lamps are okay. I'm more or less like a lantern. I think I would rather. Need lanterns, but yeah, you can get rid of lamp, uh, lamps. Yeah, I don't think that we need lamps at all as a civilization. Like, I'm always actually slightly annoyed when there's a lamp in the room. Like, oh, I got to turn this thing on just for the switch. God, just get the clapper, man. I don't think that they make that anymore. Have you ever had a clapper in your house? No, but I we have Google now where I just go, hey, Google, turn on the lights and... The lights come on automatically. Oh, fancy pants with your chandelier, snob. Oh, actually, it just—I don't know if you can see that, but I just turned on my basement lights. That's all you have to do is say, "Google, turn on the lights." Do you have to be specific about where? Like, Google, turn on the basement light. I mean, you could be, but hey, Google, turn off the lights. I love the idea that we want to kind of like, hey, let's have privacy. In the meantime, what do you go for, privacy or convenience? Uh, oh, there you go. See, just went off. Um, I mean, privacy, obviously, but could somebody hack into my, you know, my my home and mess with me? Of course they could. Yeah, that would be. I'm really not that worried about that. I'm pretty sure that anybody has all of your information anyway. So I don't yeah, really well, worry too much about it. So I'm like, ah, whatever. Click. They got nothing. I got nothing that they can't steal. So they don't want my bank account. Oh, okay. That's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, leave us a quick review. We really appreciate it. It really helps out the show. And let us know what you think are the best lights. I'm surprised Chris... I, I'm just really surprised I didn't personally put Christmas lights up a lot higher, but I do love a flashlight. It's just the coolest thing.